Hi there, Duncan Green here with the uh, weekly roundup of posts on From Poverty to Power. Um, lovely sunny day, summer's coming, what's not to like? I had a very nice birthday yesterday. My wife Kathy took me out for my annual clothes shop, um, which was great fun. Um, so all in all, very good mood, looking forward to the weekend. Let's bring you up to date with link, uh, the blog. So first of all, links I liked. So some much grimmer news from, uh, from the US, the whole uh, threat to the Roe v. Wade uh, decision at the Supreme Court. But what it has thrown up is some amazing placards and um, social media messages. So I put a couple of the really good ones on there. And then on a more positive note, one of my true development heroes, Robert Chambers, has just had his 90th birthday, still going strong. Uh, some lovely tributes to his work, um, and I link to those. He's always been a total role model for me. I mean, how does he stay so positive, so curious? Uh, just a glorious, lovely man, and um, happy 90th birthday to him. Uh, another funny video, um, a Kenyan person, a citizen, phones up the IMF switchboard and asks if he can cancel Kenya's loan. Um, very funny, but also just, I was really impressed by, to be honest, the IMF switchboard person who, she was really good, managed it very, very well. So yeah, so basically, I'm sorry, you're not the president. That's the only person who can do that. Uh, but just very funny having the idea of, uh, of doing that. Back to more serious stuff. Uh, it was quite a wonky uh, week on the blog. Theories of change, the muddy middle and what to do about assumptions. So this came out of a uh, a session I did with Oxfam campaigners who do this amazing course called the Campaigns and Advocacy Leadership Program, CALP, which I've always been hugely impressed by. And they were asked, what do they want to talk about? And they said, theories of change. So they got me on the line to um, have a chat about that. I gave some thoughts and the PowerPoints on the blog. Um, I suppose I was a bit surprised because it sort of felt to me like theories of change are a bit last decade in the I don't hear much about them, but it's one of those things where if you talk about them a lot, by the time you get bored, it's just starting to, you know, really get spread and used massively. So actually a lot of people read the blog, a lot of people commented on it, and clearly my perception that theories of change are a bit out, out, outmoded is not correct. So what I said was, yeah, some, 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 but some summaries, they should provide a compass, not a map. You know, I hate it when they tie down. You don't want people to start... Um, you know, uh, reducing people's uh, uh, imagination. I drew a distinction between theories of change, which is how the system itself is changing, and theories of action, which are the usually small differences we can make as activists, because I hate it when people put themselves at the center of everything. That's usually a really bad start to a campaign conversation. Uh, all they can do is aim for a best guess for what you're gonna try, not best practice. I think it's much more important to ask the right questions rather than prescribe the answers. Absolutely linked to localization. They have to be based on local knowledge, not imported models, unless you really, really invest in adapting those models. And they have to be iterative. You have to stand back and test every few months and then revise them. And you need antennae. To do that, you need antennae to read the changing circumstances and learn from your own success and failure. And they have to be in charge. They have to be the captain of the ship. Things like monitoring, evaluation and learning or relations with funders, they have to be at the service of the theory of change. What's disastrous is if the tail wags the dog and they're in charge of the theory of change. 
So that was what I said, which is all fairly standard and readers on the regular readers of the blog will recognize it all. But now the conversation, which clarified a few things for me. The bridge, somebody called it a muddy middle, where you jump from the analysis to, okay, what are we gonna to do, to strategy? And sometimes it feels like the two have very little connection. So people do their sort of, they jump through the hoops of doing their stakeholder mapping or their power analysis, but then they just default to doing what they would have done anyway in terms of a campaign. So you don't want to do that, but you also, so you want the analysis to inform the strategy, but I don't think it can, you know, there's not some sort of totally linear way of going from strategy, uh, from, from analysis to strategy. There has to be a, a gap where genius and imagination and creativity come in. So I think what the analysis should do is narrow the gap, but not completely close it. And then you have a room to jump and you're more likely to end up somewhere interesting, but you still have to, you have to, you know, um, um, make up, you know, come up with good ideas from scratch and use your imagination. And then the assumption, you know, with, with, with any theory of change, a few minutes of serious thought will identify a dozen underlying assumptions behind anything which is a kind of if A, then B sort of proposition. And I've got a cartoon I always put up on this, uh, which is on the blog. Um, well, that's fine. So you identify all these assumptions, but then what do you do? So I suppose at a minimum, you see if some of them are wrong, you know, and you can use research or reflection, just sort of surfacing them and then talking about them to see whether they're, they're reasonable. And then you revisit the strategy in light of whether those assumptions should be corrected. Um, and it's also, I think, a thing you, you can ask, yeah, it's quite important to have people who are not like you, diverse voices, critical friends, come and discuss your assumptions and say, well, that's crazy. That's not how things work. So that's quite a useful, I think, thing to think about what you do with the assumptions once you've identified them. And then what do you do with with theories of change once you've finished, once you've done them and come up with some big diagram, you know, and the, the biggest surprise to me was, you know, these are seasoned campaigners I was talking to, and not one could recall a campaign team ever getting the initial theory of change off the shelf and revisiting it. They're almost always dead documents. So they're very useful when you're getting funding, they're useful when you're having that conversation and building a team, gets everybody on the same page, everybody thinking creatively, but then they wither and die. And if that's true, well, okay, maybe that's maybe that we should accept that that's their role. It's a starter role. And think about other ways of iterating and adapting our influencing work. So maybe have mini theories of change that you do every few months. Or I had a conversation with a couple of aid agencies about rules of thumb, those kind of instinctive heuristics, they're called in academic jargon, that people use to navigate on a daily basis. They don't go back to these big theory of change documents. They have instinctive ways of judging whether to do X or Y. So I thought it was a really good session. The next one was, um, I came across something in my timeline, which I normally would be fairly skeptical about, but I, I started reading it and got quite interested. So I'm not a great fan of post-growth or degrowth debates um, because they don't usually engage with policy. They usually do the kind of school of activism, which is, I'm right, the planet is dying or frying, why won't you listen? Which I think is a terrible theory of change and I get very frustrated with it. Um, but there's this, uh, a new paper I came across by the Center for the Understanding of Sustainable Prosperity um, actually caught my eye because it explores precisely that interface between convinced academic advocates 
and the and lawmakers who are kind of rushing from meeting to meeting trying to decide what to do next and it tried to understand how those academics can talk more productively with those lawmakers um, so one was an interesting idea on framing that you talk about growth dependency once you start talking about something as dependency you trigger people into thinking about drug dependency addiction so it's kind of creates a nice framework for discussing growth uh, in a more from their point of view a more productive way than uh, just calling it growth but in terms of the interface between scholars and lawmakers they talked about utilizing the language of government and playing to polish politicians need for solutions rational argument and well evidence research is not enough on its own so political influence requires some form of emotional engagement with the public and i would argue also with decision makers um, partnerships uh, between researchers not just coming on with your research at the end uh, but actually having partnerships all the time and then a final point which is the one that got my attention there are different types of policy makers with different interests and relationships to power and the academic researchers should vary their communication strategies accordingly in many cases politicians themselves are seeking to influence other politicians in power so the first three are straight you know research for impact 101 I give lectures on that. I was part of a team at Oxfam that wrote a really good, I think, chapter on that. Um, and there's links on the blog. But the last one was, was, was got me thinking because it's always a good idea to disaggregate any kind of monolithic blob, the state, the private sector, decision makers. Because when you dig in, you'll start finding potential allies and enemies. You start to see points of entry for influence. You start to get, yeah, you start to come up with better ideas for how to actually do your work. So <clears throat> digging in, so that, that may be, that was all from the executive summary. On that section, I went into the body of the report. The authors interviewed two senior politicians and two very senior aides to senior politicians, which is not a big sample, but they came up with some good headlines. So academics who wish to influence policy need to find the language of the government of the day and that of opposition parties. And they, one of their interviews said, it's important to remember that you cannot just raise questions and complications. Politicians are hungry for answers. And academics often really hate doing that. They just want to say, everything's complicated. Everything's context specific. Needs more research. Don't waste your time. Second point, there are different types of policymakers. So policymakers are anything but a monolithic block. Within government, there are ministers, civil servants, and special advisors. In parliament, there are backbenchers, opposition parties, and cross-party committees. Nationally, political parties have their own forums for developing policy platforms. In many cases, politicians themselves do not have direct access to power. If they are backbenchers in opposition, or even if they are ministers of departments that have less influence on government policy than others, notably like the Treasury, which has often constrained the influence of the environmental agenda within the government, what this means is that often the politicians the researchers may be seeking to influence are themselves in a not dissimilar position in terms of themselves seeking to influence others who wield political power. So that was really interesting about being able to put yourself in the shoes of the politicians and understand the, the system they're operating in and, and working with them accordingly. So very, I thought that was, that was a nice piece of work. Final post of the week was how do you identify, support, and or build champions in development? So a former student of mine sent me over a, a paper um, by ITAD, the uh, consultancy, and I looked at it and I looked for the executive summary and I thought, blimey, it's 11 pages. 
that that probably needs a blog if it's any good and it was quite good so i thought okay i'll write a blog about this because no one no executive reads an 11 page executive summary and the actual report is 134 pages so the report is for the gates foundation bill and melinda gates and it's on champions how to identify support and evaluate advocates for social change so gates foundation has asked itad to say okay look we we want to work with champions of development in different areas how do we understand the phenomenon of champions? And I liked it because the aid sector is not always very thoughtful about this. They, you know, I think maybe people have got some sort of deep underlying Marxism that identifies the works with communities or organizations or institutions, just sort of faceless blobs. When it's actually on the ground, often I've seen, you know, Oxfam people and others are very good at identifying leaders uh, and champions, whether current or potential future ones and working with them so there's a bit of a sort of dissonance there and that's why i really like the developmental leadership program which is also digging into how do leaders emerge what are what, how are they different what do they do you know those sort of questions so the itad research identified four categories of champions technical or issue experts political insiders high level influencers and influencer communicators so i think yeah, that's 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 quite nice in terms of a category, and they dig into each of those four and sort of find subcategories. So that's that's a nice typology. And then, which champions can outsiders try and build, and how? So it's important to consider political and socio-cultural factors to identify the right type of champion. And they discuss political, socio-cultural, socio-cultural, and issue-related factors in some detail. For example you know, um, political space. So where the political space is restricted or closed, identify champions who might provide alternative entry points, e.g. outside central government and or traditional authority and or from outside the country. Building a plurality of champions can help provide solidarity and security. So they're, they're looking, they're, they're, they're mapping across from this phenomenon of champions to the, the, the context, you know, what's going on in politics, uh, society and the issue concerned, uh, which I thought was very nice. You know, when the issue is highly sensitive, it may be comparatively more important to supplement grass tops champion approaches. So those people who are the sort of in the lead of grassroots movements with constituency level work and to give particular attention to bipartisan coalition builders. So I thought that was quite astute. There's some good, sensible suggestions on this. How do you identify them? And there's a whole bunch of those in a big table, um, setting out different approaches. How do you identify them? When identifying and assessing potential champions, the literature puts strong emphasis on taking sufficient time, uh, time, to get these early phases of champion building right. Some champions can be relatively easily identified because of their current influence. But in many cases, it will be important to identify those with potential who will or might have likely future influence. One way that effective champions differ from others is through their commitment. Persistence is the most mentioned characteristic of champions across the the literature. So it's not just about being bright or well-connected. What evidence do you have that these people are actually going to stay with it, even through difficult times, reverses, etc.? Issue alignment is an important factor to consider, but there is space for some evolution in champions' positions over time and space to operate where alignment is not full. There are risks in requiring too close alignment in that impressions of orchestration 
a sense that champions are being closely directed or coordinated can lead to questions about champions' credibility and legitimacy. Absolutely. If outsiders try and ventriloquise people, get them to use exactly the, the jargon that they use back in the donor country and you know, jump through all the hoops, then those, those leaders may well look quite, start to look quite foreign to their local constituencies. You can actually undermine leaders by making them do that. On the other hand, you have red lines about you know, um, uh, your own values. So how do you navigate that difficult space uh, is, is always interesting. An effective champion must be capable of effectively fulfilling the role they're taking on in terms of having the requisite skills and expertise. Well, that's pretty obvious. But in general, though, this is not a necessary condition for selection in their capabilities can be developed through champion building processes. So you might look for somebody who's got those other more intangible qualities and then get, yeah, help them acquire the skills they need to be the champion. Potential champions who do not already exhibit the characteristics discussed above must be judged to some extent on their potential. One interviewee described recognising potential as both a science and an art, and that unexpected champions can emerge in unpredictable ways due to unusual circumstances. In the US, for example, the Parkland students stepped into a national leadership role on gun control after a mass shooting at their school, having exhibited limited or no obvious prior public champion characteristics. The same could be said for other high-profile champions like Malala or Greta Thunberg. So this is interesting. This is saying, you know, you can't predict. So watch and detect early who is emerging as a champion. But I think there's also you know, something which reminds me of conversations with venture capitalists. You know, just what's on paper and all the sort of formal requirements. You also need a gut feeling that this person has that grit and potential to be worth investing in as a future champion. So then the paper goes on to look at how to deliver champion building programs and the all important topic for somebody like the Gates Foundation, which is obsessed with measurement, is how do you measure the impact of all this? So this is all good stuff. I think there's a huge overlap between champions and leadership. Uh, I'm not quite sure what the difference is. And I got lo lots of great comments. People really engaged with this post and these ideas. Um, and, and with the um, Theories of Change post earlier, which is reassuring because it means the geeks are out there reading the blog and chipping in usually more informed comments than my posts, which is exactly how it should be. So uh, on that positive note, have a great weekend and I'll talk to you next week. Bye.